0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done nearly 700 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there are PayPal buttons on the site and there's a page explaining alternatives to PayPal. Another thing that I've been announcing lately with good results is that I'm on a project to get properly proofread transcripts of all the back gap interviews. And I've got a growing team of volunteers who've been helping with this. And I'm using some AI-based software that's really accurate called Whisper made by the same people who make chat GPT, but it still needs a little proofreading after Whisper generates the transcript. And one of the main motivations for doing this is that YouTube now translates subtitles into over 100 languages if you have subtitles, and obviously it would need accurate subtitles to do a good job. So if you feel like helping with that, get in touch. It's kind of fun, people say. My guest today is Chris Niebar. Chris earned his PhD in cognitive neuropsychology at the University of Toledo, specializing in the differences between the left and right sides of the human brain. He is the author of No Self, No Problem, How Neuropsychology is Catching Up to Buddhism, and the No Self, No Problem Workbook, Exercises and Practices from Neuropsychology and Buddhism to Help You Lose Your Mind. So I read, or rather listened to both books in the last couple of weeks, and obviously I've lost my mind. He was a professor at a state university in Pennsylvania for 22 years, where he taught courses on consciousness, mindfulness, left and right brain differences, and artificial intelligence. His website is Chrisnebarphd.com, and don't worry about the spelling of that. I'll put a link to it on his page on BatCap.com. Oh, and one other little housekeeping point. My video editor, who's a lot younger than me, reminds me that it's really good for the popularity of one's YouTube channel if people like and subscribe. So if you like these videos, like them, click the little thumbs up button. And if you like the channel in general, please subscribe. We reached a 100,000 subscribers a few weeks ago, or maybe a month ago. So that was nice. Google sent me a little plaque. So Chris, welcome. Hey, Rick. Nice to be here. Thanks. I very much enjoyed listening to your books. And also you have hundreds of short videos on your YouTube channel, sometimes two, three minutes, sometimes 10 minutes. And I listened to many of those. And as is my habit, I was listening while riding my bike, washing the dishes, walking in the woods, cutting the grass. So I didn't take a lot of notes, but I have a feeling that we're just going to fill up two hours very easily with an interesting conversation. And you were telling me before we started recording that your style is very impromptu as well, and you you just kind of like to wing it, and things good things come out. So let's wing it. That's good. So why don't you just start by giving us a synopsis of... What lights your fire you know what interests you based upon everything you've learned over the years and the kinds of things you talk about on your youtube channel and and so on and then we'll we'll use that as a springboard so i've always
1: been interested in consciousness even as an undergraduate before consciousness was really popular i don't know if you might remember 20 years ago it was still a little taboo particularly in academia and consciousness would get maybe one chapter if you if you find the right introduction to psychology book the right one you'd have to search and then it would have one chapter on consciousness. One of the things I think that is probably the main confusion in this area is confusing thinking. So the thinking mind, which is so dependent on language with raw consciousness, just simple consciousness, uh, that can void of thought. And so that's been something i've been pursuing, and I'm actually working on another book right now that talks about these two worlds we live in. One is the abstract world of thinking, and it creates all kinds of interesting abstractions that we we often mistake for being real, things like governments and workplaces and universities and all these are just abstract concepts and then there's what I would call the real world, which is very simple conscious experiences, and one of the reasons and mindfulness are so powerful is they get us out of the thinking abstract world and bring us back to something that is so powerful and joyful and that is these simple conscious experiences and so many of us we start our day having a sip of tea and that's just so gets us set up so we can go into these abstract worlds of work politics and sort of deal with them so that's what i've been working on pretty recently
0: I've been interested in consciousness most of my life, too, and meditating for a long time, and as you have. And I remember in one of your books, or maybe it was one of your YouTube videos, you mentioned a book by Daniel Dennett, which was supposed to be all about consciousness. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I think you said, it turned out to be a bit disappointing, because it was really all about thinking, Mm -hmm. and really nothing much about consciousness. In fact, I don't even know if he would regard consciousness even remotely, as what it, I think you and I would agree that it probably is, which is fundamental, not merely a product of the brain. And I used to bring that into my class, and this is going all the way back to the 90s when I was
1: still in grad school. We had a seminar on his book, and it was what a wonderful title you know, Consciousness Explained. I remember being like, you know, a kid at Christmas morning, I was like, this has got to be the, the best, you know, I couldn't wait to get into it. And then I was met with one disappointment after another because if it would, if he had called it thinking explained, it would have been a perfect book because it really got into psychology, neuropsych, and it really did take thinking apart as about the best you could do at the time. But again, he dismissed consciousness. And I think what he really wanted to dismiss was thinking. And then you could see it, and I think he's got the most profound example of confusing thinking and consciousness, and and we see that so often in Western science, and and so uh, I use that often as as the most profound example of confusing thinking and consciousness. And if you dismiss the consciousness, that like you just said, it, it's so fundamental, it's so simple in some ways that that's where we're going when we meditate. That's where we're going when we practice mindfulness. I mean, the mindfulness and meditation overlap if they're not the exact same thing because they're getting us out of that thinking mind and into what we might call simple conscious experiences often sensory experiences
0: i think daniel dennett is considered one of the so-called four horsemen along with sam harris christopher hitchens and uh who was the other guy i don't know one other but they're all these sort of neo-atheists They think that basically when your body dies, that's it, you know, kaput, there's nothing which outlasts it. Therefore, consciousness, they would assume, is not a foundational thing in the universe, but rather a product of the brain. But anyway, that's a bit of a tangent. I think one really good way of understanding or commenting on Daniel Dennett's point is that obviously thinking and all things we perceive are things we are conscious of. They are not consciousness itself. And without consciousness, we wouldn't be aware of them. You make a good point here and there in your books. That is, you said to your students, if you could be given a choice between being a a multimillionaire or being conscious, but you can't have both, which would you choose? Yeah, 20 years now. And it's one of those questions I could ask students
1: and comes up on podcasts. And it's a great thing to ponder because It helps us become grateful for something we already have. We are already conscious, and we recognize that there's nothing you could tempt me with. You could give me all the money, all the power, and I still wouldn't trade my consciousness for it. I wouldn't become a zombie. I was a billionaire zombie because I realized that consciousness is the most valuable thing. And it's a question that gets people to reevaluate how important thinking is versus consciousness how consciousness is at the base of what it means not just to be human because i think plenty of other species are conscious but it does define the human experience and
0: And the the mosquito experience
1: any experience but we've trivialized consciousness and i don't think it's a coincidence that neuroscientists became obsessed with zombies every consciousness book pondered the zombie question because it helped shine a light on what was really valuable But there's still this kind of conflict between if I could be a genius, particularly in Western society, we value intelligence so much. So it gets a little bit trickier when you're like, okay, well, what if I made you an Einstein and you had this ability to think at the highest level of thought? And then you could see people getting tempted because we've been taught to value thinking, you know, the classic Descartes, I think, therefore I am, where our existence itself was defined by thinking. And so At the core, we still value that so much that it becomes very tempted to become a genius, even if it's at the cost of our own happiness. So I it's kind of an old TV show. Your listeners might be familiar with House. I always liked House.
0: It's such an interview. Hugh Laurie,
1: that was great. Yeah, because he was a genius, but he was addicted to drugs. He was miserable. Yeah, he was kind of a dick. (laughs) He was. But through the years, when I would ask students... It was very easy to tempt them. They would much rather be house than someone who is intellectually average, but very happy. And that puts a very interesting question on the table. What do we really value? Would we rather be intelligent, but miserable? Or maybe just average intelligence, but really at peace?
0: A couple of thoughts in there. Obviously, there are not actual zombies. But if they were, even the zombies you see in zombie movies... They've got to be conscious, because otherwise they wouldn't be able to perceive. Well, there's these robots, you know, that Boston, what is it, Boston Analytics, they they can dance and they can do backflips and all this stuff. But I guess you could argue they are not conscious, obviously. Is that what a zombie would be? A human body, which is dead, and therefore not conscious, but it's somehow functioning the way a robot functions. I think that's an amazing
1: question that we really need to ponder right now because humans have dominated the thinking sphere of the planet for 50,000 years. We've been at the top of the thinking chain and suddenly AI comes along and now it can outthink us. But the question is, is it conscious? AI was actually beating us at strategy games like chess back in the eighties. We just can't compete in terms of thinking anymore. So now we got to reach a little deeper. Maybe that puts the spotlight back on consciousness. Are we conscious, is AI conscious? I don't really know. I think that's a really good question. And if you go back to Turing, it's Alan Turing's original paper on computer machinery and intelligence. He was so far ahead of his time. You can find the paper online. It's free. You can download it. And the question he asked is, can a machine think? And there's a place in it where he talks about objections. He even made the distinction thinking and consciousness back in the 50s. And he said, the question he's asking is, can a machine think? And he said, well, is a machine conscious? And he said, that's a whole different question. He avoided answering it, but he recognized that it was a completely different question to ask. And I think that's where we're at right now. Because if we lose the thinking challenge, then where does consciousness come up? And if you look, what do I do with my books? What is No Self No Problem really about? What is the workbook really about? They're about us going beyond our obsession with thinking and recognizing that our human existence is so much richer, so much fuller than simply thinking all the time.
0: What might be useful at this point is to throw in a little Advaita Vedanta. Obviously, Advaita Vedanta has been around for a long time, but these days exponents of it often use the movie screen analogy, that consciousness is like the movie screen, and then all the experiences we have are like the images that are projected onto the screen. And um, you can have the screen without the images, but you can't have the images without the screen. And Advaita would add that consciousness is fundamental. It's, It's Brahman, existence, consciousness, bliss, which gets into the happiness question that we'll talk more about, is this totality really but if we want to think of it that way it's the substratum or basis or foundation of the universe and everything else is an appearance so if we want to ask if a machine can be conscious what we're asking essentially i think we would say that a machine is consciousness because everything is consciousness a rock is consciousness which probably doesn't know that it's conscious so you have to have a sophisticated instrument for self-referral for recognition of one's being conscious and even a an amoeba behaves that way. Maybe the the amoeba doesn't know it's conscious, but it is conscious because it can avoid unpleasant things and seek out food and, and so on. You might say, well we could train a machine to do that too. And so what would be the difference between an amoeba and a machine which can seek out and avoid things? What I'm trying to get at is that everything is consciousness, but as things evolve, they become more and more capable of reflecting consciousness, of being a sense organ of of the infinite, if you will. And at a certain stage, particularly the human stage, one can realize one's essential nature and live in that realization while still functioning as an individual. And that would be sort of the apex of evolution in a way, or at least a very significant milestone. So really what separates
1: us, and uh, again, if you look at the human species, Homo sapiens, I mean, we've been on the planet for, what, 20,0, 300,000 years. There's been all kinds of different forms of humans. I mean, Homo erectus and Neanderthal, and then people have had DNA tests, and they're surprised. there's like, wow, 1% Neanderthal. <laughs> and so, um, you know, kind of a, it shows that, you know, we were all on the planet at the same time, maybe eight different forms of humanity, and then Homo sapiens. One out, no one's really sure why, one hypothesis is that we started to think. What we typically engage in, this linguistic problem solving, what I associate with the left side of the brain, kicked in about 50,000 years ago and really set us on a different path. If you've ever seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, I, I think so well with our ancestors and, and they're at a, at a water source and they some other group comes along and kicks them out of the area, and the one is sort of sitting there and thinking for the very first time. And what the very first thought was, was that's a bone, but maybe I could use that bone as a weapon. And that's exactly what he did. And he took that bone and got the water source back. But then he throws the bone into space, and all of a sudden it becomes the satellite. And I thought that was a brilliant way of showing that the same thing that our ancestors did, we're taking the world and we're able to use thought to create something that it wasn't even intended to be. And in a way, it's a very interesting form of creativity. But in another way, it's taking reality and changing it into something it isn't. And that's what the left side of the brain seems to excel at. That's what thinking seems to be. almost its primary goal is to take the world and it changes it into something it isn't. And so we've got language and it's a wonderful tool because we're using it right now to communicate. And that's something we wouldn't want to get rid of. But then there's a tipping point Somewhere, and I may, it may have been about 200 years ago when we weren't using thinking as a tool anymore. Thinking became an end unto itself. And all of a sudden, language started to replace reality itself. And so, right now, I would say that our left brain culture embraces language over reality. And then, of course, we've got the whole Zen movement that has reminded us over and over again that a finger pointing to the moon isn't the moon. And so you can see how we've gone so far that language has become dominant, even overtaking reality itself. But then we've also observed the countermeasures, practices of meditation, mindfulness, to help bring us back to the real world rather than thinking about it. And when I do videos or when I would do my mindfulness class, one of the main problems. That, and I really have watched this escalate over the last 20 years, is that inner voice, that voice in the head. And they're not using it as a tool any longer. Instead of being a tool that you can use for maybe an hour a day to solve specific problems, it keeps you up at night. And all of a sudden you can't sleep because it just keeps doing this rumination over something that might happen so when I would do a video on something about intrusive thoughts, it would double in terms of how many people would view it. And then if you look at how many books are out right now and they're all on, how do we deal with intrusive thoughts? So this wonderful tool that we invented about 50,000 years ago that resulted in our survival, we literally owe our survival to it, but now it's become a tool that's using us and we're getting lost in words and valuing words over reality itself. And and so in in the work, what I try to do is kind of bring back a little bit of balance. You know, it was a wonderful line. Alan Watts was very influential with me. I think he summed up the dilemma of Western society when he said, a person who thinks all the time thinks nothing but thoughts. They live in a world of illusion. And that captures our existence, our modern existence where we live more in this left brain Loop of repetitive thoughts than we do in reality. And I think that explains the interest in mindfulness and meditation
0: now. Yeah. You may be aware that the Yoga Sutras define thinking as a sort of an excitation of consciousness the chitta vrittis chitta meaning mind and vrittis are like excitations or fluctuations and the second verse of the yoga sutra says that yoga or union or samadhi is the cessation of these fluctuations so in other words the mind settles down becomes less excited but why is the mind excited all the time to begin with obviously in today's society we're bombarded there's a lot coming at us all the time all sorts of stimulation that even a couple hundred years ago people couldn't have dreamed of and it gets very deeply ingrained which is another ancient concept that we have impressions or some scars that have been created by our experiences and that gets get lodged in the nervous system and it result in a sort of an action impression desire cycle that just keeps us spinning on the hamster wheel of mental excitation, chasing after things, reinforcing those impressions and, and so on and so on. But what you're getting at with mindfulness and which other meditation type techniques attempt to do is to break that cycle and to allow the mind to settle down to a state of quiescence where There aren't inappropriate or unnecessary fluctuations or excitations. And then to integrate and stabilize such a state so that you can be engaged in activity while yet maintaining inner silence. And there's no conflict there once the integration has been accomplished.
1: Most people ask, well, how do you get this going? what's the starting point. And so in the workbook, I was very specific about, and, you know, we hear so many stories of this instantaneous enlightenment. And I think that probably isn't very useful. It's not very common. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it isn't very common. But, you know, when I remember when the power now became popular. And and of course, it puts this amazing spiritual carrot in front of everyone because he really transformed. It was an overnight transformation. Then that becomes very desirable. And it actually influenced, I actually did a, a self-published first book, and it was very much all about forgetting, just forget enlightenment altogether. I called it The Neurotic's Guide to Avoiding Enlightenment. <laughs> so it was this idea of you're on the spiritual quest. And, and, and what it reflected was my own mistakes. And so I often tell people that my uh, early 20s, I was just an absolute neurotic mess. and And that voice in the head was torturous. It created so much suffering. And the harder I tried to get out of it, the more I... Actually got deeper into it. And that, that was really my first insight about how the mind works. It's nothing that you would find in many intro to psych books or even advanced psych books. And, and I stumbled across a very few people who talked about this kind of oppositional force that the mind operates on. Alan Watts talked about it. All of this Huxley talked about it, but you know, it really wasn't very much. And Victor Frankel mentioned it, something about our, Pursuit of happiness towards happiness itself, and and suddenly it was a very important mechanism of mind that I wanted to get people to recognize that if I say don't think of the number thirteen and then the number thirteen, but this happens to us so often where if you have you have to get up early in the morning a big important interview and you're laying in bed and and all of a sudden you can't sleep and it's like the harder you try to sleep the more you're up all night and then it's New Year's and you're trying to stay up to midnight and you fall asleep at (laughs) ten. at least I do, but this way the mind works, a very important architecture of how the mind operates. And so when you get this inner conflict of people pushing the mind around with the mind and trying to meditate, and you must be calmed. And my students know this, that we're always telling each other to have a good day. And I was sort of like, well, let's not put any pressure on it. Let's just have the day we're going to have. And so my students would start saying that, like, you know, have a day. (laughs) The <laughs> day you have is, is the day you're going to have, and you can see this was all tied into that kind of happiness movement that started in the '60s in psychology. When the, you know there's this quest to really embrace the positive emotions, but somehow we're going to trick the system. We're going to somehow get rid of all emotions and just experience the positives. And the harder I tried to make that happen, the deeper I suffered. The more I got into my neurosis, and and w- when I discovered that, and I can remember this, this was just an epiphany where I discovered that it was my not wanting to be neurotic that literally was my neuroticism. Me not wanting to be anxious was my anxiety. And that just absolutely floored me when I realized that the best thing I could possibly do was give up on it.
0: You're quoting Alan Watts or somebody, but maybe you made up this analogy. But I think you use the analogy of if if there's like water that's wavy, you, you're not going to get the waves to settle down by pushing on them. And so that's just going to create more waves. And I think it works that way with the mind, too. I think the mind moves around for a reason. It's seeking happiness. And, you know, all the ancient scriptures say that there's a great reservoir of happiness deep within us. If we could somehow allow the mind to turn in that direction, it could effortlessly move inward and settle down. But there's a trick to that. You can't force it. This is the situation so many of us
1: find ourselves in Western culture where we're trying to fix a thinking problem with more thinking. Right. And I'm just, you can't fix a thinking problem with more thinking. And so in the books, what I try to do is I throw so many different non-thinking forms of consciousness at people. And this is what we do in class, in the mindfulness class. You explore. I always thought of it as a buffet. And here's all these different modes of consciousness that are not based on thinking. And find one that you really enjoy. Because if you're doing yoga, but you're running some mental movie about what you're going to do over the weekend, well, that's that's not yoga. I mean, it doesn't matter what form you're doing. It doesn't matter what position your body's in. Yoga is the awareness of being in the body at that moment without thought. And then that's where the union comes in, because that connects you to the consciousness. That's really what I've been doing, because once I discovered that you can't fix a thinking problem with more thinking, it instantly, like, unplugged the whole loop. It unplugged the whole thing. And I I think I had a moment of peace for the first time in years. Mm. And I thought, well, this is very interesting. This seemed to be a very interesting trick that I had discovered. And of course, lots of people had discovered it. But That was the problem I was having with meditation. When I would start meditating, I kept thinking, how am I going to stop myself from thinking? How am I, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if that's how you've been instructed to meditate, or if you cooked up your own kind of meditation, and you have this bias against having thoughts, you're going to be frustrated because thoughts will arise. But there are ways of meditating where that's not a problem. And I'm thinking also of examples of athletes who aren't doing a whole lot of thinking, LeBron James or Michaela Schifrin or somebody else in the top of their game. They're not intellectualizing their way around the basketball court or down the ski slope, you know. This is an interesting question. I mean, comment on that and then I'll, I'll throw something back at you. Yeah, it just reminded me when my
1: son, who's been in fact, he's at a soccer game right now, he's obsessed with soccer and and it's all good. And he knows we've talked the best game he plays is when he's not thinking about it. And I remember the coaches, a very passionate little speech he gave before the game and he ended it with no mental mistakes. And I thought, oh, my goodness, they're doomed now <laughs> <laughs> because you're, the more you're focused on not making a mental mistake you're focused less on the actual game. And so one of the things I would do with my class is the body scanning. And the students, so many of them love the body scanning. And it's just obviously simple body awareness, but we don't do it very often because that mostly caught up here in that left brain voice in the head. But of course, that's essential to sports to stop thinking about it. And you can't, if you're caught up in thinking about it, you're not doing it. And so many of the brilliant people in sports They're just simply not thinking. And that's, and they call it in the zone. And, you know, that's why the saying is just do it. Don't think about it. But it's a tricky thing because if you go out there and think you can stop thinking by thinking how to stop thinking, then it gets you caught in a whole different loop. (laughs) And then, you know, studied martial arts my whole life. And so many times I was confronted with a situation where how do I stop thinking? If I could just be here and it's a lot more difficult when people are throwing kicks at you and you're trying to avoid the kicks and you and you know that the best moves you've ever had are the ones that came from a greater source of intelligence rather than this thinking mind you know i was lost one time and i stopped to get directions and the person said you can't get there from here <laughs> and i just started laughing <laughs> but there's a certain sense of truth to that when we talk about how do we get out of the thinking mind you can't get to out of thinking with more thinking and i think that for so many of us, particularly in Western culture, because if you do study cultures, and I became particularly interested in the Pita Han, a very small group in the Amazon rainforest that lives almost as close to our ancestors as we could possibly imagine. So they're hunter-gatherers and the, some of, they have so many remarkable things about them because one, when Westerners observe them, they're by far the happiest people on the planet in terms of just smiling and laughing, which is very fascinating because they're confronted with horrific things that most of us couldn't tolerate disease death people around them are dying it's just a commonplace thing for someone to die early and yet they're the happiest people on the planet so in a way it almost became why aren't we studying these people more because they seem to hold some secret and if they hold any secret it's that they simply are not obsessed with thought in fact so much of our culture in western society we couldn't even imagine a world without numbers you know, you go to work and there's numbers and, you know, with numbers of time and, you know, house has numbers and we're looking at our phone and it's filled with numbers. And and the interesting thing about them is they don't have numbers. And so they are so resistant to thinking that all the abstract things in our world, they simply don't exist. One of the people who studied them, Dan Everett, he tried to get them to count to 10. And so the adults in the village, just very simple task, like count to 10, something that we just literally would take for granted, they couldn't learn it after like eight months of trying to, they, the idea of thinking was so unusual to them. Numbers are incredible abstractions. Even something like three, I can't become conscious. I can become conscious of examples of three, but three in a, in its abstract sense, I can't become conscious of. And yet these abstractions pervade our entire culture. If a workplace had to not use numbers for a day, the whole place would probably and when I was a professor, everything was numbers, student ratings, that's how we judge things. You can go on Amazon and we what's your rating of the book? Is it 4.7? Is a four? Our obsession with this abstraction has taken us away, I think, from the real world. And then when you see examples of this in cultures like the Peter Han, the trick is using the mind sparingly, thinking when you need to. You'll probably only need to think a couple hours a day, I would guess, at best. I think a couple hours a day would be fine for the average Westerner.
0: Well, that's some interesting points here. I remember you talking about that tribe in your book, and that originally some Christian missionary discovered them or something and went in there to try to convert them to Christianity, and they asked him, well have you met Jesus? And he said, no. Do you know anybody who has met Jesus? He said, no. I don't suppose they even could conceive of 2,000 years ago because they live so much in the present. And then he ended up leaving Christianity because of the impression they had made upon him. But obviously, we live in a very complex world. And most of us aren't going to run off and live in the rainforest. And we are not hopefully going to dismantle our society To the point where it becomes that quote unquote primitive. Again, I don't mean to use that as a pejorative term, but Pandora's box has been opened and we know so much and we have all these technologies and I don't think we're going to abandon them. So the, the trick is how can we become as innocent as babes or to, you know, quote Jesus about, you know, except you be as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. How can we do that while living in such a complex, demanding world? I think it can be done. I'm just asking the question here.
1: I mean, that's the trick. I'm sitting in this structure so protected. I've got food. I could walk 10 feet in a refrigerator filled with food so I don't have to go out into the woods and hunt. Clearly, we can't go back to this state. So the real trick is how do we find some middle path? And again, anytime I do a long lecture, I always start off with the recognition of all the tricks of the left brain. And the trick of the left brain is confusing the map for the territory. Let's have the left brain works. It gets us to confuse the word with the actual thing. And that's why words can be so powerful. But words are only powerful if you mistake them as something real. And of course, the left brain, and I go into this about this split brain patients and and there's a number of other types of patients, particularly people with right brain strokes. And it just shows like the left brain's capacity to tell stories. And so we are such a storytelling society. It's it's such a facet of our culture. It's like the fish in the ocean. Like we don't even see the ocean. And yet. Stories permeate every aspect of our existence in our, in this particular society. And again, to contrast that with the Peter Hunt, they don't tell stories. They're not storytellers. They don't tell their kids stories. They have no creation myths. They're so in the here and now that they don't get distracted by this kind of seductive storytelling ability of the left brain. And so, so how, what do we do? And one of the things you can, you can try to do. And so I have a bunch of different exercises because I think it's much more important to experience these things than to philosophize about them. And um, one of the things is just recognizing this, sometimes I call it Mind 1.0, this uh, left hemisphere program that we've got running, and recognizing its infinite capacity for storytelling. If you just go out in public and you just walk around the grocery store, you can start observing that voice in the head, creating all these stories about everyone around you. That person is poor. That person looks like they're rich. That person looks happy. That person looks like they might be mad at me. And it it goes on. And so the trick and really the goal of at least what I do and a lot of other people, I think it's actually very, very close to what we might call spirituality, is become the watcher, become the observer of these stories. Michael Gazzaniga, he did all the split brain research. He called the left brain the interpreter. And this interpretive device, it's always linguistic. So that's the voice in the head. It's on from morning to night, and it's trying to predict the future. It's really a survival mechanism. It's very effective. It was right just enough to keep our species to allow us to survive. But it's also wrong. And it's wrong so often. And for a lot of us, we forget the misses, and we only remember the hits. I have students, as a very first practice, we would, over the entire semester, and the journal would be anytime you have some intrusive thought and it's this interpreter saying, okay, here's what's going to happen tomorrow at work. And I know that email I sent upset my boss and he's going to be so mad at me. And that's the world that so many of us live in. And we take those so seriously. And over the course of the semester, we would give those all a confidence rating. How sure are you about this? You've got these medical tests and, and, and you're worried about them. How sure are you that those thoughts are accurate? And by the end of the semester, we would look at the accuracy of these. And the highest accuracy was about 50%. Some people were at 20%. So these thoughts, this predictive mechanism in their left brain, it's wrong far more often than it's right. And so you, you know, when you go and oh, that person is rich. And no, they could be poor. You don't know. And that Mercedes could be, they're in debt. You, know, you just never know. In becoming the observer of this left brain interpreter, you become more of what they on the East, like the I don't know mind, the I don't know consciousness. And so to me, that was a really important first step, particularly for students who, again, 20-year-olds seem to be experiencing perhaps an unprecedented level of anxiety, and it could be related to things like COVID and the pandemic and all this. But it could be other factors, and it it could be the uh, seriousness on which we take these left-brain interpretations, even after all these years meditating and exploring left brain interpreter hasn't changed very much it still does its thing it's just i don't take it seriously at all i rarely listen to it i find myself laughing at it more often than anything because it's so simplistic the left brain is usually it's one variable and when you really, when you get into particularly how the left and right brain, how it's been characterized, the left brain is a serial processor. So this is so characteristic of language, you know, serial one thing at a time. And that's the way we talk. If I said 10 words all at once, it would be confusing. So it's 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 really useful that language is organized around one thing, one thought at a time. And so this is the way the left brain works. But the right brain is a parallel processor and it's Its attention is far more vast and capable of processing multiple things at once. And so when we get into these interpretations, they're often so simplistic, and they don't capture reality at all. They're like cartoon versions of reality. And so the more you start to see that, the more absurd these interpretations become. And and, and then it, it becomes very natural to just take them less seriously. So that's the program I have in these books. It's all about coming up with ways to recognize this. Again, I liken it to a computer program because it's so automatic. And again, you could do really simple ways to prove this. You could say, I'm going to say a pattern, but in your head, don't complete it. And I say three, two, and people deterred one. That automatic aspect of it is tied in with our automatic judgments of people. And so we go in and you know, oh, that person looks very Confident, or oh, that person looks insecure, then uh, they seem like an extrovert or an introvert, and it's always this cartoon-like, simplistic judgment. Some people claim that that has stopped, and uh, I think it was Gary Weber. Maybe has a couple of really nice videos where the whole voice just quit, no voice in the head at all, and he just uses it whenever it's appropriate. And he was worried, you know, how's this going to work? We're so used to having it going twenty-four-seven. But, you know, people like that are evidence. You know, Joe Bolte-Taylor was just a wonderful example, uh, even though she had to go through a stroke to show the world what happens when the left brain is down. You know, everything changed. It was a radical shift from left brain, chatter in the head, judgment, worry, to this state of nirvana where she saw the connections and felt at peace and everything seemed to be right. That shift from left to right hemisphere it doesn't have to be huge, it doesn't have to be dramatic. it can be really, really tiny little shift, I think, and would be in far better
0: shape. I interviewed Gary about ten years ago. Uh, I think he lives in Pennsylvania, actually, somewhere Hershey or someplace, and um we hung out a little bit at one of the sand conferences and My sticking point with him is he he was emphatic that he hadn't really had a thought ever since the day he was doing a shoulder stand or something, asana, and his mind stopped. And I said, Gary, you're talking to me. You must be having thoughts that precede your words. And it links back to something I was going to suggest about 10 minutes ago, which is that if I raise my arm, There was a thought that preceded that. Now it's not an intellectual thought. I think I'll raise my arm now. Okay. Here we go. Up it goes. You know, you don't do all that, but there is some kind of mental impulse that gives rise to the physical action. And I think what happens to people is there's way too much of the mental machinations going on all the time unnecessarily like we're referring to the athletes you can do most things quite spontaneously without a whole lot of cogitation and the mind can be cultured to function that way we can say to do less and accomplish more perhaps or to kind of abide by nature's principle of least action people's minds are too excited there can be a culturing where the mind becomes very still and, and you feel like you're just resting in silence, and yet you might be dynamically active, driving, talking to people, running through a busy airport. Another issue with the left brain, and this comes about through a couple of different uh,
1: observations with the split brain patients, with also patients with right brain damage, is the left brains need to be right. And, not e- and, and, and so need to, this need to be right is that it's not even questioning if it's right, it just absolutely assumes. And so when the left brain created these stories, just to go back to the split brain patients, again, this is a condition where most of us, we have two very different sides to the brain, but they're interconnected by 100 million nerve fibers. And in these split brain patients, they had severed that, disconnecting the two sides. And And that may sound really strange that we have two really different mental processing centers. But on the other hand, a lot of us do make comments that seem like this. Like they say, well, part of me wants this new job, but part of me doesn't. So that sounds kind of strange, <laughs> but when you think about it, well, you know, we have really two brains, and they're, and they're very different anatomically, and they process the world in, the, in really different ways, and so maybe it doesn't seem that strange that we may say part of me likes this relationship and another part of me doesn't, but when they isolated the two sides of the brain, and again, the left brain is responsible for most of language, certainly the generation of speech, they would give commands to the right brain, something simple like stand, and the patient would stand. Now the left brain's totally in the dark about why we just got up right now. But it made a story up. It was the ease upon which the left brain created these stories, and the believability of the story. The left brain was totally confident, oh, that I stood up because you know my leg fell asleep and I needed to stretch, and that was totally wrong. And the real reason was that a command went to the right brain to stand. That's the real reason. And at best, the left brain should have said, "I don't know." I just, I'm i clueless. But you don't see us humans doing that. We rarely get into that I don't know mind and I don't know state. The left brain creates a story and we believe it. Now, it's even more radical in a different group of patients who the right brain, which usually keeps the left brain stories in line, and it's been referred to as the devil's advocate or the anomaly detector. And so these left brain stories are kept in reality check to some extent by the right brain. But in patients who have right brain damage, now the left brain is just free to create story after story. But the point I'm trying to make is it's absolutely confident in it. And then it's absolutely certain that it's right. And so when people have right brain damage, particularly to this level, and remember the the brain is cross-wired to the body, so the right brain processes uh, and monitors and controls the left half of the body. So they've had right brain injury. Now the whole left side of their body is paralyzed. You can ask these patients questions like, well, can you raise your left hand? And they'll say, well, I could, but I don't feel like it. And so the left brain is making up a story, totally confident, not in touch with reality at all. The real explanation is, no, I can't, I'm paralyzed. But it went so far, and it's actually, this is coming from a well-known neuroscientist, V.S. Ramachandran, documented these cases. In one case, he said, well, point to me using your left hand, point to my face, and the patient hallucinated. She actually had a hallucination. She said, Dr. Ramachandran, my finger, can't you see it? I'm pointing to your face right now. And of course, the whole time her paralyzed hand is there. But her story was so inventive. And she believed it to such a profound level that she hallucinated to corroborate the story. And so when when we get back to dealing with kind of a day-to-day life and, you know, how do we get along with others, which is obviously an issue. The recognition that there is a part of you in the left brain that makes up stories and is absolutely convinced that it's right and it never questions them can be incredibly liberating because how do we deal with differences of beliefs? We all have these left brain beliefs, but we're not all in agreement. How do we coexist? One of the ways, of course, is you can get into these fascinating debates but you again, to go back to a point of these stories, you simply don't take them too seriously. And so, you know, my daughter's in college right now. And we go through some wonderful debates. And I always think it's important to debate with someone that you love because that's going to keep that connection. And, and it helps you realize, like, look, these are just stories my left brain is kind. I'm not going to take them too seriously. And so we can have some really fun discussions, and it looks on the surface like maybe we're getting in a deep sense of argument, but it's never met with that left brain seriousness. It's always playful. And I think if you were going to really characterize the left and right side of the brain, the left brain takes things seriously, and that's why the language works so well because we take it seriously. The right brain is so much more playful. It's so less literal. And then, of course, this is why it does metaphor and uh, sarcasm. And so, sarcasm is such a great example of like, yes, there's this thing happening, but I'm not taking that seriously. I'm not taking that literally. And so how do we coexist when we have this tendency to be all captivated in this left brain loop? And again, small steps. Observe the interpreter. Recognize that it's not who you are. The biggest mistake we could make is to think that we are our thoughts. When I talk to people who are suffering from intrusive thoughts, the first thing I'll tell them is, well, stop your intrusive thoughts, and they get a little upset with you. (laughs) But I'm like, isn't that the best piece of evidence that it's not who you are? If it wasn't, the Buddha made a similar argument, you know, 2,500 years ago. If you could control all these things, then maybe that would be who you, but the very fact that you can't control them shows Pretty explicitly, they're not who you are. That insight alone creates a little bit of space between the thoughts themselves and the consciousness. So consciousness for so many is tied up so much with that left brain interpreter. Then you have these little practices where, okay, there's an, another intrusive thought. And, you know, you've probably heard the old Zen story of someone who had an anger problem and he goes to the teacher and the teacher says, well, show me your anger problem. And he said something like, well, I can't control it. And it was like, well, if you can't control it, Why are you worried about it? It's not Mm -hmm. who you are. And so the little lessons like that, I found really helpful to take these little lessons from the East and apply them in a neuropsychological framework from shifting consciousness from the left brain to the right brain. And uh, it seems like it's been pretty successful.
0: Yeah, the first time I did LSD when I was 17, the main takeaway from the experience, there were many, but the main takeaway was that I had always assumed prior to that that everybody saw the same world. And all of a sudden I realized, whoa, you can radically alter the way you see the world. And everybody's seeing it quite differently. And so I kind of realized that what I want to accomplish in life is to see the world as it actually is and not through some kind of distorted filter. But what you're saying about the left brain always wanting to be right, society these days seems to be more deeply entrenched than ever in polarized camps that are convinced that their particular perspective is right, and the other guys are horribly wrong. So I'm not suggesting we put LSD in the water supply, but it would be nice if people could bring in more of this right brain stuff and just chill a little bit and realize that we're all feeling different parts of the elephant. And it's the same elephant, but people are feeling it quite differently. One thing I liked about Jill Bolte-Taylor's work, whom I interviewed a few weeks ago, her book was called Whole Brain Living, is the idea that there are different parts of the brain, um, four of them that she identifies, that each serve very different functions. And most people don't have them all fully developed and have some sort of lopsided development where one or the other part of the brain predominates. But her contention was that the evolutionary future of humanity will involve the full and holistic and balanced development of all four parts of the brain. So if that's achieved, not necessarily for all of humanity, but even for one person, then one could expect to function in a way where One performs all one's individual functions, and yet at the same time is grounded in universality, which was character four in her model, the interface with the unbounded awareness. And I think that would be a very harmonious way of living, and one in which one could be comprehensive in one's perspective so as to harmonize all sorts of paradoxical viewpoints within one's understanding and experience. Which is not to say that you would be wishy-washy and give everything equal credence. You probably would still have a political preference or philosophical preference or whatever, but you would be more forgiving and flexible with regard to other perspectives.
1: Well, you know, a couple of really interesting things with that. Again, when we get to the inflexible part, it's fascinating that this is such a left hemisphere processing trait because you know, when we talk about language and language has rules and and grammar is a really important part of language. And and uh, I, I don't know what went wrong with me, but that never really developed in my left brain. And so when I did my first book, it was self-published. So I just had so much fun with grammar. I just broke rules of grammar all the time. And instead of having like ellipses with three dots, I'll just have five commas or something. And it didn't do that well, but the people who did read it You could see their left brain reacting like, you can't break these rules. (laughs) And so one of the things that the left brain does too, and there's a whole series of research in the 80s about the left brain and consistency. And of course, that's what plays a big role with the self-illusion. We feel like there's one consistent, coherent self. And that rule is really useful to test and evaluate how authentic it is. Because one of the things we can do is, and I actually have this as an exercise, it's called something like how many yous in a day. And if you become observer, particularly of the interpreter, the interpreter is very whimsical. It, it, it changes really radically. And, and we're always trying to keep that coherency. So if we get, if we lose our temper, we'll say things like something came over me or something got into me. We, we come up with these, trying to maintain that coherency and sometimes we can't. But I would actually encourage people to explore. And it's it's very much like Joe Taylor's model and other people have you know, some multiple selves model have been around for a while that we're not one coherent self. And even Alan Watts talked about this. He said, look, you've never made a deal to be some coherent self. You're going to sign a contract that said that I will be a consistent self from morning to night. And you can explore how many selves actually come and go. And so right now I've got some kind of self that's podcast self. And, you know, I'm not going to talk like this two hours from now. And my family, when they're used to podcast self, they they get some of that. But there's dad self, and there, there's a, all these social roles that we play and then the emotions. When you start observing this and you dispel the illusion of some kind of consistent, coherent self, it's really like a river. There's a flow to it. And there could almost be an infinite number of cells in a very short time. Like you, you go to work and, and you're talking and someone else enters a room and all of a sudden your self, it's altered a little bit. And there's a different person who's talking. And when you become the observer all these, of all these different selves, it almost seems like a miss How did I ever buy into this notion that there was some coherent self from morning to night? So what I'm getting to that is when that is recognized and we're in debate, and maybe you take a very different view than we're, we're kind of arguing about it. But you realize that even if we're on different sides of a debate, it's not tied in with my identity. And the way I would word it is like, well, look, there's this self that has an idea that disagrees with some part of you, but tomorrow that may change. I can only hold so much to it. And the same self that, you know, and you could change, you know, it's just, this. it's much more like a flowing river. We could be arguing next week, the exact opposite. I could be taking your side and you could be taking my side. And so there's a wonderful play of debate that I think we've lost And and the reason we've lost it is because, again, left hemisphere seriousness, but also it's tied in with the idea of a single coherent self that's identified with all these beliefs. But beliefs can change. And in the same way that we don't control our thoughts, we don't control our beliefs either. And so I could could tell your audience, like, look, I'll give you a million dollars if you believe there's a monster outside. And they'll be like, I can't do it. Well, if you can't do it, then you don't control your beliefs. And so beliefs are just like thought bubbles are like collections of thought that kind of get grouped together. And if you recognize that you don't control your thoughts, well, you also recognize that you don't control your beliefs. Therefore you're not going to take them too seriously, but that doesn't mean we can't have some fun in a debate and we can't, um, you know, make it a playful, enjoyable. If I get into a a debate with say my daughter or someone, we always end it with something fun, you know, because we always go back to reminding that like, look, the whole thing is just fun. We're, we're this play. And again, to go back to Alan Watts, he reminded us so much that there's this difference between work. You know, work we take seriously and play. And so that's why we play music. One of the best ways, I think, to get out of left brain seriousness is music. And a lot of us do this already. In fact, I had an assignment I gave my class. And I said, but just it was very spontaneous. And I said, let's do a paper on what music means to me. I was completely blown away by the responses because their responses were like, music is the meaning of my life. (laughs) Music was foundational to their sanity. And again, when you get into all the tonality, again, these reflect a lot of right brain processes, not to say the left brain isn't involved in music. In fact, the whole brain seems to be involved in music. But one thing, when you're really deep into music, you're probably not thinking very much. So music is one of the quick go-to ways to get out of the thinking mind. And and it brings so much joy and peace to people. And I had students saying, I would marry music if I could. <laughs> <laughs> and I get that, you know, I mean, I've been a musician. That was my original intent in life was to be a musician. And and I don't do it seriously in the sense that I expect something out of it. I don't expect to be a professional musician. I do it absolutely It's as close as I can get to meditation, because in meditation, if you're doing it for an external purpose or to go somewhere or to be something that you're not, in my view, you're not really doing meditation. Meditation should be an end unto itself. And that's the way music is for me. And so we all have something like that. We just don't cultivate it because in a left brain goal oriented system, everything has to have some future goal to it. Like I'm improving myself. I'm making more money. And again, we recognize that that just, it never ends. So we can get out of those moments here and there by getting into music, poetry, all the things that Western culture seems to devalue. If you think of anything you would tell your parents that you want to do this and they're disappointed, it's probably something the right brain is really good at.
0: Yeah. I wanted to play drums when I was four years old and my Parents told me I needed to learn piano first to get a foundation in music. And I hated practicing piano. I wanted to play the drums. And (laughs) finally, when I was 14, 10 years later, I was playing Wipeout on the kitchen counter. My father was in the bathroom on the other side of the wall. When he came out, he said, I think we should get you a set of drums. (laughs) So he got the drums and I was in a band in about three days. Anyway, you were saying a minute ago that we don't choose our beliefs and you've probably seen the social dilemma that movie or documentary that was on Netflix still is. And obviously you can't believe on the spot that there's a monster outside. But if you spend enough time on YouTube, allowing its algorithms to feed you the things that you seem to be attracted to, you may end up believing the earth is flat or that Trump won the election or whatever else it is that you have fixated on with your preferences so people do in a sense choose their beliefs through a million little incremental choices that end up being more and more deeply ingrained as you give your attention to those choices don't you think well that's a great point and i think it was ian mcgill
1: who often talked about the left brain being kind of in a hall of mirrors in a sense and it is So in the book, I encourage people, like whatever you believe, like so many people in the morning, I get up and I listen to a lot of podcasts and you want to listen to something that is consistent with what you believe. And and, and that reinforces all of your beliefs. But it is interesting that sometimes you can choose the opposite. And it's a really interesting thing to pick things that are really the exact opposite of what you would normally pick. And that I think that's a good way to keep the hemispheres balanced so you don't go too far into this hall of mirrors. And so, again, this way of describing the two sides of the brain where the left brain forms beliefs, but the right brain is the devil's advocate, that devil's advocate is a really important mechanism. Sometimes people think skepticism is a negative quality, but I could find skepticism to be very spiritual. And when people become skeptical of the self, and they realize, wow, self isn't what I thought it was. It was a whole movement of people becoming skeptical of what we call the physical world. I mean, there's this movement towards what we would call idealism, where they start thinking, well, maybe we live in these concepts. We mistake the physical world to be when it's really just consciousness. Yep. And then even the whole practice of neti-neti. So you're tearing away, like, not this, not that. And so skepticism, I think, can be, um, one, I think it's very much identified with the right brain because the right brain is always keeping the left brain kind of in this closer situation with reality. But, you know, I encourage people, like, be someone else's right brain. And so sometimes people can get into these closed systems. And when you get into that kind of left brain closed system, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, there's a tipping point And it can get harder and harder to get out of the more you get into it. I've always been interested in strange beliefs. And so I've done a lot of research on strange beliefs. And um was sort of, I guess you could say, an academic hobby of mine. But what I found is the best mechanism for that is to surround what you might consider, you know, if your right brain isn't working, if your right brain isn't keeping your left brain in check, go to external sources. And this is, of course, why I think debate is so important and conversation. Remember that left brain is always going to want to be right over finding truth so with the right brain i think is more interested in truth than being right and truth
0: is a big word but i think we can use it cautiously here yeah you mentioned something called the rtpj if i got that acronym right the part of the right brain that does nothing else but consider things from others perspective and you're probably aware of the work of byron cady who has this little formula where you know do you know that to be true Are you absolutely sure that's true? You know, and where would you be without that certainty? And then flip it around, try to see it from the other perspective. It's a good exercise because, well, like you say, the left brain likes to be right. You said another interesting thing in your book, which was that since the left brain is dominant in most people because most of us are right-handed, 80% of us or something, maybe that correlates with our cultural tendency to be certain of our opinions and perspectives is that what you meant to say and do you want to elaborate on that i won't say our natural tendency to want to be right but i think in a culture
1: that emphasizes the uh left brain and and depends so much on the left brain that we get these tendencies for us to really i don't know why john cougar's song just came to mind And it was, I forget the lyrics, it was like a thousand young poets screaming out their words to a world that only wants to be heard. Which is to say, we're so confident in our opinion that we're all shouting it and become talkers rather than listeners.
0: Remember that Buffalo Springfield song, For What It's Worth? Singing songs and carrying signs mostly say, hooray for my side. Yeah, yeah, perfect. And...
1: We may not be able to stop that. And again, I think if we tried to stop it, that might even make it worse because of the, that nature of the left brain and its tendency for opposition. So the way out of that, again, is to play with it more, have a more playful attitude with it, not taking it as seriously. And then you have a side and I have a side. We could be in a room with people who are all disagreeing. And as long as it's not taken really seriously, and it's kind of the way things were not that long ago. You know, I sort of have this memory of my family debating politics and stuff and they would debate debate and get a little intense but then it was over and then it was done you know i think that's absolutely possible to get back to that but getting the right brain going again so many exercises i try to get in the books subtle things little things to me that would be a way of changing our value systems and so valuing things like poetry and you can't just pretend to value it and all that starts with being the gap between thinking. And what, and that's such a precious moment for so many people when they first recognize that I can be conscious without thought. And there's something about that state. I always talk about it as we're people who are walking around an airport with hundreds of pounds of luggage, and we don't even know why we're carrying it around. It's not even ours. And the moment you become the gap between thoughts, it's like putting the luggage down. And and that's why it's often described as joyful. And, and that's why, like Joe Bolte-Taylor, when she shifted immediately from left brain to right brain awareness, it was like putting all that luggage down. And then, you, why was I carrying it?
0: There's a nice analogy for that, actually, in, in spiritual circles. And that is, once you get on the train, put your suitcase down. The train is going to carry it for you. The reality that that tries to explain is that God is the doer, or the gunas of nature, or whatever, cosmic intelligence, or whatever. You are actually not the doer. And therefore, if, if you take yourself to be the doer, you're kind of a thief. You're attributing something to yourself that doesn't belong to you, and you're making life a lot harder than it needs to be. People wonder where creativity comes from, and thinking plays a very small role in the creative
1: process. Initially, of course, you might want to focus your thoughts on a particular problem, and certainly you're not going to come up with physics solutions unless you think about physics for years. But there's this almost consensus that once you've thought about it, you need to just stop thinking. And then you walk away. And then there's this intelligence that no one seems to be able to describe. It's not a thinking type of intelligence, but the answer just comes to you. And for a lot of people they say, Well, it's unconscious. I've never been one to buy too much in too Unconsciousness, in the sense that to me, the thinking mind has a body that isn't thought or processed at the level of thinking the thinking mind has deemed unconscious. But when you stop thinking all the time, the remarkable thing is is that you realize that there's a certain consciousness that's been in the background, and it's completely aware I mean no one who teaches yoga or meditation would say that you're becoming unconscious in these states. It's a very focused, alert form of consciousness.
0: Yeah, that consciousness can become so lively that it can actually persist during sleep, deep sleep. I know people who haven't slept in decades. Their bodies sleep, they may snore, but that inner awareness is never lost, and there are degrees of that. I want to just get back to something we were saying a minute ago about beliefs. The attitude I try to culture is, both with people and ideas, is to give them the benefit of the doubt but to also take them with a grain of salt and proportions vary. so you can throw any idea at me is the earth flat? okay well I'd like to hear your arguments but the evidence is really strong and so there's mostly all salt there or have aliens been visiting the earth? Well now that one I, I'm more interested in I think there's a great you know a lot of evidence for that that may be the case and, but I'm almost making an absolute statement here but I don't feel like I ever would adamantly say, no, this can absolutely not exist, or yes, this absolutely exists. And that's a scientific attitude. A scientist, if he's really a scientist, and a lot of scientists aren't these days, will never dig his heels in and and insist that his particular understanding of things could not be revised.
1: It's all tentative. But I agree. In the same way that
0: we don't control our beliefs, if someone were
1: to really forcibly argue that the Earth is flat, it would have a very difficult time. There's nothing I could do with it. Oh, there's
0: whole conventions where they all get together and talk about it.
1: I used to bring that up in class because it was a sort of a safe place to go because so many people are like most people. I've never actually met a flat earther myself.
0: I interviewed a guy. I ended up taking down his interview for that and other reasons. I just didn't feel he was someone that I could comfortably refer people to anymore. But his Facebook page is all about these little memes of the, the earth is flat.
1: But is that any stranger than that one patient whose right brain was taken offline and she was hallucinating that her finger was pointing to the doctor?
0: That belief is also pretty far out there. Yeah. But in most cases, there's some kind of pathology going on, I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, there was a more overt and we don't really know how
1: far the left brain can go. And, and, and there could be subtle deficits in people. who Maybe the right brain is maybe it's a, there's not as much interaction. We're not really sure. There's the consensus issue, but then it is interesting that when you go back and and to something like Copernicus or someone who you know he had to publish on the revolution of the heavenly spheres, he had to publish it on his deathbed because so many people were so antagonistic to the idea that we may not be the center of the universe.
0: Sure, Galileo was faced with house arrest.
1: That comes into mind too. You mentioned Byron Katie, and I really do like her work. When I first encountered it, I thought, wow, what she's doing here is putting the left brain on trial. And she's just saying, "Do you know this with absolute certainty?" And when and we will say that, but if we're hit with it over and over again, we have to admit, "No, I don't know it with absolute certainty." And that cracks things. Just you know, that hard shell has just a tiny crack in it at that point. And it's really the very first small step that people can take. The left brain is doing all these things. Uh, one of the things it loves to do is categorize. And, and so sometimes I start in all kinds of different places, but categories are abstractions that really don't exist in reality, but we act as if they do talk about strange beliefs, but categories are strange beliefs that so many of us buy into as if they're part of actual physical reality, but they're really not. Like well, give us an example. Um, Let me do something from the research, because this was, um, uh something with Stephen Coslin, really well-known cognitive neuroscientist in the 90s. What's the name of the person? Stephen Coslin. He's still may be at Harvard. He was most okay. of his career at Harvard. Most of the world didn't pay attention to this, but being a left-right brain person, I was completely drawn to it. And, and it was revolutionary in many ways. And so most people, the left brain, this categories and as a whole there research on this, and the right brain does space, a coordinate spatial system. So if I reach for something, you know, you need a precise distance measurement for that. And this is pretty well established. But Coslin came up with a really interesting task where he'd just have a line and then there was a dot. And the dot could be anywhere above or anywhere below. And that was the categorical task. And the uh, coordinate task, the one that required specific detail in terms of spatial location, you'd have to respond exactly where the dot was. You couldn't collapse over a bunch of things. You had to be very precise. So he presented this task to the left and right sides of the brain. Now, again, these are both spatial tasks. The right brain should have just gone absolutely superior. But because the spatial task included categories, and the trick about a category is, this is what makes it such an abstraction. This is what makes it such a mental process instead of being out in reality. Is that in reality, there's a dot and it could be here or here or here or here or here. And these are all considered above. So categories collapse across individual uniqueness and it focuses on only one thing they all have in common, which in this case is being above the line. So it has to ignore all kinds of things and then focus on one thing. So, in doing so, it's something that exists only in the mind. And so, to everyone's surprise, this spatial task, which should have been done by the right brain in a very far more effective way, but as long as these were spatial categories, the left brain is so categorical that it can actually beat the right brain at a spatial task as long as it deals with spatial categories. So, the left brain again collapses across individual particulars and it looks at this as a group reality this group only exists in my head i mean this dot's really right here and this dot's really right here the idea of saying that this is all above is a mental concept it doesn't exist in reality one of the researchers at the lab i was in did a really interesting study on stereotyping and so again, what are what stereotyping and racism is, other than categorizing people? You look at a few simple physical features that people have in common, and you group them. This group doesn't exist in reality. I found that when the left hemisphere had subtle ways of measuring left hemisphere arousal, when the left hemisphere was aroused, people engaged in stereotypes to a far greater degree than when their right brain was aroused. And when the right brain was aroused, they would process people individually. And I thought that was a really interesting way to look at how the left brain is viewing the world in a really different way, a a cartoon-like way compared to how the right brain, it seems to be so more individualistic.
0: Interesting. There's obviously a lot of categorization taking place in today's society. We keep coming back to today's society, but racism is a type (laughs) of categorization, homophobia, so many different things, political categorization. And it seems like if people were were more right brain, they would ease up on the tendency to do that and see people as unique individuals with their own worth and not make these blanket judgments of, you know, stereotypes.
1: Yeah. I mean, take something as simple as
0: we have a Yorkie
1: and I could categorize that. I could say he's a Yorkie and put him in this big category with other, but that's not true. I mean, it's relatively true. And it might be useful if I went to the vet and they wanted to know what category this dog was in. But the truth is, the reality is this dog is completely individual. There really isn't any other dog like it. And it's the same with all of us. All consciousness exploring. if have completely individual paths. And so any way that we categorize ourselves, whether it's based on our beliefs or some physical characteristic, we could almost, if we wanted to push it a little further, we could say these are all collective hallucinations of the left brain. They simply don't exist in reality.
0: Yeah. Although I think, it, like many things, categorization serves its function. It's it's valuable. I think I will buy a car. Okay, a car is a category. What kind of car? All right. I think I'll get a Subaru. Yeah, I like Subarus. That's a category. All right. What kind of Subaru? I think I'll get an Outback. You know, there's no harm in having these categories so we can identify things it would be really awkward or or impractical to say, well, I think I will buy a mode of transportation and just kind of leave it at that. (laughs) No, it's a great example. The goal of at least
1: what I do is never to eliminate the usefulness, the brilliance of what the left brain does. And categorization is one of these, when we do it so effectively, and it's one of the things that um, AI is having a tough time Competing with our ability to so easily categorize and and do it in sometimes sophisticated ways, but yeah, so you know we keep it when it's useful, but then when we're dealing with like if I'm dealing with you as an individual, you may actually again that left hemisphere interpreter may impose some kind of categories on you. Or, you know, I give an example in a book, maybe you're in a bookstore and you're looking for an employee and this, you know, huge muscle person comes in and you think, oh, you probably haven't read a book because you're making some silly stereotype. And and that's just the left brain doing its thing. It's, it's seeing the world in very simplistic ways. And, and again, it may not turn off. And, and as long as you don't take it seriously, as long as you don't act on it.
0: A contemporary example that's very unfortunate is the extent to which black people, especially black men, are subjected to traffic stops. I think that Republican Tim Scott, I think his name was, is running for president. He was talking in some talk about how frequently he is stopped by the police just because he fits a certain category in their minds, a certain stereotype. And you could see
1: how useful it would be for people to recognize that I can be wrong. And you get the left brain that could think about what the left brain is doing. Not only does it engage in stereotyping, but it's the same part of the brain that's convinced it's right. Yeah, <laughs> and So you put those two things together and it's a dangerous combination to put those two things together. I think it, we're at a very interesting time. We've got this left brain and I just keep referring to it as the left brain, but you wouldn't have to. Now, some people, people like Eckhart Tolle just call it the ego people like call it the mind, but there's a sense that the waking up is just recognizing that it's not always right. And it's not who you are. And Those recognitions go a long way.
0: Yeah. One good conclusion on this particular point, and then I want to get into something else that we haven't discussed much yet, is there's no harm in what the left brain does. We need it. All these specific categorizing, judging stuff it does—it just needs to be supplemented or counterbalanced with what the right brain does. Or I'm thinking of Jill's character four, which is the interface with unbounded awareness. If we can really establish unbounded awareness as our normal experience in life, and integrate it with all the specific individual functions that we need in order to live, then we'll live a balanced life and the negative aspects of the left brain won't be there anymore. They'll be modified or ameliorated by the unboundedness. Let's take an example. Routine work is essential for productivity in many professions. You can't just do something different every day on an assembly line, but that becomes very confining and very stultifying for the people who have to do the same thing over and over again. I mean, at Foxconn in China, they have nets on the building because people go nuts putting together iPhones for 12 hours a day and they tend to jump off the building. Hopefully there could be some better way of making the iPhones. But if the people at least had access to their innermost nature, which is totally liberated, which is freedom, then they'd have that inner contentment, even if they had to do something repetitive or very specific over and over again. It's interesting the way you worded that, too, because
1: this left hemisphere that so many people identify as who they are it really is like a computer program there's no free will with it. it's inflexible and it's, it's more a reflection of the culture as opposed to something unique or individual and the recognition of that program as a program as something that has very little to do with who you are and then you know you put the luggage down and all of a sudden it's very interesting things happen and this consciousness this state of consciousness that was more in the background before becomes far more center stage. And it absolutely feels like coming home. It feels like this is who I've been the whole time. I've been wearing this mask of personality, this mask of being Chris, and and I identified as what I did, and I identified as my age, and I identified as all these characteristics that were socially opposed. They were not things I chose. And when you get to consciousness, then the freedom of that Seems like a whole new experience. It's like you feel like you're free. Like I think when James put it like, my first act of freedom will be to believe in freedom. And it's like you have that recognition that you could almost liken it to the movie, The Matrix, where that thought created dream world of the left brain is, isn't who you are. It's like a program. It's restrictive. It's inflexible and it's totally pre-wired. It's, it's predetermined. And when you put that down and you realize that you are this mystery that thinking mind can't really put into words because consciousness who has been even close to defining it. It's resisted all intellectual limitations where we can actually nail it down and say, well, here's my definition of consciousness. It doesn't stop us from trying. And you know, I'm perfectly fine with giving definitions of consciousness, but it's something that is known experientially. And when, and when you get to that, to me, it seems absolutely synonymous with what we would call freedom.
0: Yeah, uh, it is. It, it, The reason it's called liberation is that it is literally unbounded, and it is what you are. So you are free in your essential nature, but the isolated experiences of life impinge upon that, like the movies playing on the movie screen, and identification takes place the screen gets overshadowed by the movies. So you think you are Superman or Harry Potter or whatever individual images that are constantly changing. You think you are constantly changing, but in fact you are really the foundation upon which all the changing universe exists and in which it resides.
1: It's always there. It's always been there. And when those experiences
0: start happening,
1: because, you know, in my twenties, all this kind of got started with the death of my father, which was very surprising. And, and death, it was like a shock to the system. I, what it did to people. And it became this enemy that I thought, well, not only am I terrified of it, but we've got to overcome it somehow. <laughs> and then, of course, the only thing that dies is that, that thinking mind and that the interpretive stories that were created through a lifetime, but the consciousness itself is absolutely eternal and the consciousness itself isn't going to die. And, and so, when it comes to that, death is just a story, and when you want to talk about freedom, and what greater freedom is is there than recognizing that the only thing that dies is a story and be happy to live you know as long as my story is going to go i'm I'm good with that, but there's absolutely nothing that worries or has some kind of fear of something that's beyond a story, and so that's the radical transformative experiences to be identified with the story is really suffering itself. What do you think about reincarnation? It's an interesting one because particularly when you write about the self being a story and you say, well, the self is a fiction. And what I mean, I I don't, you know, some people say, well, the self doesn't exist. and, And I don't really mean that the self doesn't exist. I just, in the sense it doesn't exist as a real coherent solid entity it exists as a story. So the simple way to put it is it's more of a verb than a noun. And so maybe I'm selfing because I have some self that I'm creating right now. And then and then I'll have some other selfing that I'll do later. And and these selves come and go. And, and so we talk about reincarnation and we say, well, that self, this thing that I took so seriously and, and was so identified with, now it seems rather trivial. So that's not going to be reincarnated. But when we get to okay, well, what is there? And we we could actually start talking again. I think we can about souls. But then you say, well, what is a soul? And that's where we get to where the thinking mind, you're not going to be able to nail it. It's like consciousness. You're not going to be able to articulate it. You're not going to be able to put it into a category and compare it and contrast it. So by its definition, it's something that's unknown. But I think the notion of a soul and where I've come to on this path is that consciousness is fundamental but also has this love of diversity. While it may be one consciousness, the evidence seems to be that it loves getting lost and it loves playing hide and seek. And the best way to forget who you are is to hide in all of us individuals and then get lost in egos. And that's a very wild ride. But everything about this reality seems to suggest that this consciousness not only does it love to play who it isn't, but you can't even find two trees that are alike. This was some kind of simulation. You could really imagine it being like just so easy to copy and paste everything. Every tree would, every blade of grass would be the same, and, and we would probably buy into that world. But the interesting thing about the world, again, is this remarkable diversity, and so this, the consciousness that I'm having right now seems to have a unique perspective. And so we might call souls. And again, you have to be careful with this because then, you know, the ego could find a very clever way of hiding in this concept of a soul. But I think that whatever soul is, it's beyond our thinking mind's capacity to conceptualize. But it's not going to stop us from trying. (laughs) That left brain is uh, insistent on, if anything else. And so there's a really interesting, and it comes up in different religions, but the relation between the multiplicity and the individual, sort of like the Trinity, one and the three are the same. And, and you see this in different places. So when we still talk about the individual soul and the connection to the greater consciousness, it's almost like we have to feel our way around instead of think. For me, personally, this goes all the way back to when I was in church as a kid. And I remember priest was talking, he was giving a sermon, and he was going into God creating. And, and I, I just wanted to ask him a question. But, you know, as a little kid in church, you would never do such a thing. But I wanted to ask them, if God created everything, what did God use except God? So in that sense, we are a reflection of this eternal. But at the same time, very paradoxical, we're all taking like these individual trips. And all the individual trips are remarkably individual. So when when you take a look at the ego, then it seems like we all go to the same boring job. We all have the same routine. and, And then we can categorize people and make it even more simplistic. But when you shift that to getting out of that left-brain thinking, the originality of every moment seems so remarkably precious, so amazingly unique. We're having this conversation right now. This is like the first time the universe has a conversation with us. We're like artists creating something completely new that's never happened. And that, to me, is completely connected with that feeling of joy and that feeling of living life as an artist, rather than living life as that left-brain routine.
0: Yeah, that was a very astute question you wanted to ask as a little kid. If God created everything, what did he have to create with other than God? Because God alone is, supposedly. If God is on the present, then there can't be anything other than God. If this pen is anything other than God, then there's a hole in God, the pen-shaped hole right here. I spent a fair amount of time studying Vedanta, taking classes with Swami Sarvapyananda and so on, and uh, they've really thought this stuff out very nicely. I'll just riff for a second here. On the one hand, there are scriptures like the Manduka Upanishad and the Ashtavakra Gita, which emphasize that nothing ever happened. There is no universe. The supposed snake was never a snake. It's always been a rope, so you don't need to get rid of the snake because there never was one, and so on. On the other hand, they have like this concept of Vyavaharika, which means transactional reality. So the whole relative creation with all of its diversity and, and so on is, you know, it's not ultimately real, but you can't just dismiss it as utterly unreal if you want to live. You have to interact with it and take it somewhat seriously. And then with the idea of reincarnation and all that, there's the idea of the jiva which, again, is an individuated thing, which is not ultimately real, but which has its transactional or relative reality, and which does, in fact, go from life to life, from body to body. So in a sense, you could say that's a self, but it's not ultimately a self. So there's kind of a, a both-and resolution of this issue of whether or not we have a self. We do and we don't. That's one of those paradoxes. I love paradox. And Me too. And I have a t-shirt. That, in fact, I'm wearing it today, but I took it off for this interview. It says paradox on it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So many
1: ways and tricks to get out of the left brain. And one of them, again, and that's why the Cohen comes up so often. Because um if I say be spontaneous, be natural, and the left brain starts creating ways to be natural. And it starts thinking, well, let's come up with a list. And here's five ways to be natural. and Of course, you know, I'm just going way way off the path in doing that and the right brain seems to have no problem with paradox and the universe has thrown so many paradoxes to me it's got to be like breadcrumbs to take us home because you know we've got matter and you know everything really seems on the surface like all this stuff it's solid matter then the physicists come along and say no it's not even real it's just potentials of energy that may come and go statistically and by the way only five percent of The universe is even made up of what we consider matter. 95% is like dark matter, dark energy that is beyond our conceptualization. We have no clue what
0: it is. So, Yeah, but don't take that so seriously that you go stepping in front of buses. Yeah, exactly.
1: And time, to me, again, what a great paradox to throw at our existence. We live in the past and the future, but the only thing that really seems real is the present moment. And so whether you're looking at time or space, the universe itself and not to even mention things like quantum mechanics but it seems like what a strange thing to to kind of explore this world and find that you know it's not waves it's not particles it's like i think alan watts called it wavicles and all these things in the book i give the idea of an escape room and and this is you know consciousness really wanted to lose itself and become what it isn't and then find its way back home this reality is very close to what we might call an escape room. We've left ourselves clues. We get lost in thought. We become these conceptualized selves, which we're not, but they really feel like they are. And then we get deeper into maybe we're souls taking individual trips. But it all seems to lead back to this consciousness.
0: But paradox, key word there. You know, It doesn't have to be absolutely this or absolutely that, which people sometimes tend to make it. Search can be a candy mint and a breath mint, if you're old enough to remember those commercials. Irene's sending over some questions that people have sent in, but you said one thing in in your um, book that I found interesting, which is that light actually is only in your head or in the mind, and something that we interpret or that our brain and our eyes and all that stuff interpret based upon the way they interact with the electromagnetic field. But really, it's it's only in the mind or in the head. And I'm kind of curious whether you have any reflections on the notion in spiritual circles that awakening can be like the brilliance of a thousand suns. I have a friend who, I don't know if she's still going through this, but she was going through a phase a while back where there was so much inner light that it was almost blinding, and yet it was only coming from within. And yet, as a physiological response, she was actually squinting her eyes, even though it wasn't coming from outside. So, do you have any thoughts on that? Some of that comes from 20 years of teaching sensation perception. And
1: on the surface of it, it looked like I was teaching a class that was very scientific. And it was based on... The modern science that we know about light, although photons are kind of mysterious things that we're not exactly sure what light is. And I would take the whole process from, you know, hitting the back of the eye then getting transformed into neurological language. And then it goes back to the visual cortex. And so, you know, right now, everything seems illuminated. But the typical explanation from neuroscience is that we've got it wrong. You know, it seems like I'm in here and I'm kind of looking out at the world. But it's this light that's actually hitting the eye and, and and it's becoming transformed into neurological language. And so there can't be any light. So if you looked at my visual cortex, there's no light there. You know, my visual cortex would be completely dark. And I went through quite a bit of time and I was in class lecturing on this and it just hit me like light is consciousness. I think I even went off on that in the class at the time and probably lost a lot of students on that one. But light is consciousness. So again, we always have this metaphor between light and insight. But I think it's, uh, I think it's more profound than that. Consciousness illuminates the universe.
0: Yeah. Well, there's some interesting thoughts on that too. I mean, isn't that early verse in the Bible, "Let there be light," and it sort of parallels verses about the emergence of consciousness from the unmanifest. Photons travel, obviously, at the speed of light because they are light, and for photons, there is no time or space because they're traveling at the speed of light, so time and space have totally collapsed, and that's what they say of consciousness, it's beyond time and space. It's omnipresent. I mean, a photon from the Andromeda galaxy, from our perspective, since we're sitting still, takes two million years to get here. But from the photon's perspective, it's here instantaneously because it's traveling at the speed of light and there is no distance or time. So that is also true of consciousness. So in some interesting way that I'd like to understand more, there's an equivalence or at least a great similarity between light and consciousness. And... That can be used, I think, as a practice. And and so that's what I was doing in class. And
1: it didn't hit me until that moment where I was really trying to explain light. And I realized I can't explain it. And that's when it hit me, that it's really consciousness. In the same way that we can't put consciousness into a conceptualization, the, the reason we can't put light into a conceptualization is because there's some interesting connection with
0: the two. Another breadcrumb we've left ourselves I think. it's a big breadcrumb yeah <laughs> it's a whole loaf um, <laughs> okay there's a few questions came in jackie goffstein in colorado wants to know what excites you about the future of neuroscience
1: you know i'm actually going to start off like the opposite <laughs> and say what doesn't excite me about neuroscience and So neuroscience has been on this quest to find things like the self and to find consciousness. And no, it's not conclusive. I absolutely think it would be fascinating if we ever had a neuropsychological theory of consciousness. It would be remarkable. I don't think it's ever going to happen because I don't think that's the nature of consciousness. But neuroscience has given us... like So, of course, I use neuroscience as a foundation of looking at the left and right sides of the brain and how these create different worlds that we live in so i think the really exciting thing about neuroscience is that it's going to reach a point we're going to recognize that we are not our brain and so we're going to examine the brain i mean what would it even look like
0: what if in other words we're more like a, a radio transmitter receiver but we are not the radio
1: yeah uh, we're going to change the notion of what the brain is there for. So 90% of neuroscience believes that somehow the brain creates consciousness. The wonderful thing is it's going to take a while, but eventually it's just going to exhaust itself out of this possibility. And so we're going to start looking in different places. And we're, again, we'll view the brain not as a creator of consciousness, more like a filter, a yeah. filtering function that consciousness, and when people have these mystical experiences, I think even Joe bolte taylor I may be confusing her experience with someone else, but the way the mystics typically do describe they're like, how can the vastness of this experience ever fit back into my skull? <laughs> it seems like the filtering idea is going to take us in a much more interesting direction. But neuroscience is going to have to play its hand. It's going to have to play itself out because neuroscience has been so successful in some, we've localized so many different functions of thinking, so many different functions of the mind. We can find... You know, this part seems to play a much more important role than this other part. And so it's successful in that sense. But it's lack of success in the big questions of who am I and this consciousness. I don't think it's going to happen.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of really brilliant people these days trying to overturn materialism. You know, Bernardo Castro and Donald Hoffman and the whole, all the gang that is part of the, the uh, Galileo Commission, the, the Scientific and Medical Network, and all those people. So it seems to be a groundswell of really qualified people that are arguing very intelligently that materialism is a deficient paradigm that is going to be overturned.
1: You know, I love these 180s that, that it's exactly the opposite of what the thinking mind had assumed. and And so we're just so convinced that, well, materialism is just, it's just the most obvious thing that I don't have to believe in because I get to experience it. But then you realize like, and I think Bernardo does a really good job with this. And they explain that like, no, this stuff takes faith. There's a lot of materialism that you don't really have to believe in this stuff. And so, you know, it's the radical consciousness that has immediate experience on its side. And and, and it takes a lot less faith to take that position.
0: Yep. Incidentally, all these people we've been mentioning in this interview, I've interviewed, if people want to look them up, look up my interviews with them, Bernardo and Donald Hoffman and Ian McGilchrist and many others. So another question here, this one is from Kanta Dadlany in Bombay. Despite the exhaustive research done and being done on the human brain, what makes it still so enigmatic? That even Christoph Koch, the renowned neurophysiologist, has stated that it can never be understood. What do you attribute this to?
1: I think the initial success of neuroscience almost made it feel and you know I'm going back to the nineties, and I don't know if people remember, but that was I think Congress even said the nineties was the decade of the brain. So they had some kind of formal recognition that you know that was the decade of the brain. I don't know how meaningful that is, but it reflects how successful neuroscience was actually. And when you think about it, so let's, let me give you a, just an example. You know, we had um Freud, and Freud had these theories, and some of them may have been on track and kind of interesting. But then you've got neuroscience that comes along, and, and it, just to talk about one kind of really strange theory, and then B.S. Ramachandra talks about this, because um, Freud had his own ideas about why some people might have foot fetishes, and, and it was all symbolic and all the stuff that Freud might think of. But then neuroscience started... Poking around and found that there's a representation of the body in the brain. And it's very close to what we looked at like as a fetus. So when we were a fetus, we were curled up. So the feet and the genitals were practically on top of one another. And so in the brain's mapping of the body, it put those two areas right next to each other. And so neuroscience would have a completely different explanation for foot fetishes. It would simply say that the <laughs> wiring between these two parts of the brain, they have greater connections. And that's why some people Are turned on by this and some people are not. And so you see a really interesting neuropsychological explanation come along that seems to be way more believable and way more successful than Freud sort of just coming up with, you know, these stories. And so neuroscience had so much success with that, that this is going to be invincible. This is going to explain everything. But no matter how deep you look You can take the brain apart as much as you want, and you're going to find neurons, interconnections, neurotransmitters, and that's what you're going to find. There's no way to find a consciousness. It's the old story, you know, like you're looking in the parking lot under the light for your keys, but you know you lost them elsewhere. And people are like, well, why are you looking over?
0: Well, this is where the light is. But we're looking in the brain because it seems to be the place to look. By the same token, you don't find the electromagnetic field by taking a radio apart. You can break it down to small bits as you wish, and you may never guess that the whole purpose of this thing is to be an interface with a omnipresent field.
1: Yeah, and so its previous success has led us down a path where you can see this. If you say, well, I'm a psychologist, and people are like, oh, okay, that oh, I'm a neuropsychologist. It gives you more status because the brain has become this central... Now, again, if you're getting a transplant most of the time you'd want to be the recipient, you know, if you're getting heart, but if you're getting a brain transplant, you want to be the person giving the brain, you know? So there still is that, you know, if I was getting a brain transplant tomorrow, I don't know, it'd be pretty disturbing because I would wonder who am I going to wake up as? So, you know, there's that to consider, but I'm still convinced that neuroscience, I don't know if I want to say neuroscience is going to be a fad because that, I don't know, that's a pretty bold statement to make, but I think it's going to find its place not in answering the really big questions, but in answering more practical questions, things that might be related to you know clinical issues. But the big question of consciousness, I just don't think neuroscience is adequate. They're looking in the wrong
0: place. Well, it won't be adequate in and of itself, but as one of the tools in the toolkit, I think it'll be essential because it'll be interesting to understand the neurophysiological correlates of higher states of consciousness and things like that, as as long as we don't make the mistake of thinking the brain is creating consciousness.
1: I mean, all the stuff I talked about with the left brain, that's been super useful to me and others to help recognize who we're we're not. And that's why it was very careful with the subtitle, like, you know, how neuroscience is catching up to Buddhism. And I'm kind of particular with that because in neuroscience, it is. It's catching up, but it's not there yet. I think some of the insights of the people who experientially got there, we haven't caught up to neurologically explaining those insights.
0: Yeah. On the other hand, neuroscience has its own strength. The Buddha didn't know that anything such as called a neuron existed or that there was an amygdala or anything. There's a lot of things he didn't know that are useful to know, but obviously what he did know is ultimately useful. And in that sense, neuroscience and all sciences are catching up. Okay. Another question here. This one is from Mark Peters in Santa Clara, California. It seems like social media and cell phone addiction are largely the left brain interpreter or intrusive thoughts made manifest. Can you imagine what an externalized right brain platform might look like? All right. I guess what he's saying is if there were a technological counterpart to these left brain contraptions, what would it be? Hmm. Things are just coming to my head like a drum circle,
1: music. I, I mean, these are all... You know, yeah, there you go.
0: Those are good examples.
1: And an instrument is external, but the music that we're creating is coming from the internal manifesting. And mm-hmm. so anytime I look at a guitar and start to play it. It's a creative moment, and it is. And I like the question, too, because I really do feel like phones. It is the external manifestation of the left brain. I mean, if you look, it's just a bunch of stories. It's a bunch of interpretations. And I would say nature. Yeah,
0: Yeah. being in love, having a pet, you know, like nature, just sitting and looking at the stars or the Grand Canyon or something like that. Those are all right brainy things.
1: Even something as simple, like we started off, I was talking about sipping tea. Or you walk outside and the sun hits your face and the wind's blowing and you just become conscious of that experience. To me, that's the externalization of the right brain's processing, and you're not caught up in the voice in the head at those moments. And the thing is is when you come back to the interpreter, it devalues those moments, and it comes back and, "Oh, we have to get things done. we have to do this." And there's a, a shift in values. again, I, if I were, I'm optimistic. The, the shift in values is already taking place because there's too much happening with mindfulness, too much happening with meditation, too much happening with billionaires who just give it all up and go back into nature. And these cases are happening. And it's kind of like the beginning. It's like the wave hasn't formed maybe totally, but you can feel the uh, beginnings of it.
0: Yeah. Good point. I should let you end on that point because that's such a profound thing you just said, but there's a quote here that I forgot to read out earlier from your book that I think is worth saying, which is that, I don't know who said this, you can tell us, if the brain were simple enough to understand, we would be too simple to understand it, which is great. It's like this pull yourself up by your own bootstraps impossibility kind of thing. If the brain were simple enough to understand, we would be too simple. Our understanding would be too rudimentary to understand the brain. I think it was an engineer who actually came up with that. I can't yeah. remember his name, but, um, you know, it's a great
1: paradox to kind of use as a koan. And it shows the limitations of understanding. You know, we go into the world and just simple things like waking up in the morning and, and we do make choices. Do I want to think today? Do I want to not just ponder on problems, but I'm thinking mind it likes to create problems and uh, you know do I want to get into that world or do I want to get into the world of thoughtless nature it's amazing how much happens in the universe without thinking grass grows you know the planet revolves on its axis i mean these majestic elements of sure. the universe I mean you
0: digest are. lunch imagine yeah. if you had to think your way through that
1: yeah and <laughs> and so the universe gets along really well Without thinking, now, again, the thinking mind is going to object and say, well, what do you want to get rid of me altogether? And again, no, that's not the point. It's to bring a little bit of balance back into our lives where, you know, the drive to work can be a meditation. People ask me a lot about my formal meditation. Like I said, I had a hard time with sitting meditation. So I ended up doing Tai Chi for a very long time and qigong. But even these now, I don't find myself putting time aside for meditation much. I enjoy the shift from being in my mind to simply living a conscious life. So anything becomes a meditation. Nice.
0: Good. All righty. And just to reiterate that point you made a minute ago about there seems to be some kind of wave building, which will enable us to be a more right brain world. And I think, as we said earlier, hopefully be a world, a balanced world in which we don't throw the baby out with bathwater. We maintain all, all of our technological sophistication, but we counterbalance it with what is so sorely needed in terms of spirituality, consciousness, heart, compassion, all those beautiful qualities. Any final thoughts? I always like to end with something that's, it's a kind of a cliche thing. It found its way around.
1: It's become a meme of sorts, but that's okay. I mean, I'm glad it's a meme and it's a real simple statement. Just don't believe everything you think. It's a great place to start. It's a great way to start the day because the thoughts are going to come. And whether you play or take it seriously is all about that. If you buy into the thoughts, it's going to be a very serious life and it's going to be carrying that luggage around put the luggage down, enter it with a kind of skepticism of maybe not all my thoughts are necessarily accurate. And then interesting things start to happen where you shift into a state of simple consciousness, everyone's natural state. This is who I was. I was an infant and this was quite natural to me. And then I had imposed a system of thinking on top of that. That's okay that that happened. And it's okay even if I got pulled into taking things very seriously. Even taking things seriously doesn't necessarily have to be taking things seriously. (laughs) So so there's a lot of playful ways that you can um, bring into your life.
0: Yeah. And however stuck one might feel that one is in a left brain way of living, there's hope. Evolution is never ending. Whatever your age, whatever your circumstances, whatever your degree of conditioning Life goes on, and we can always move it in the right direction. We can't attain instant liberation, as you were talking in the beginning, necessarily. But we have a certain wiggle room, and we can keep using our wiggle room to push things or or guide things or allow things to move in evolutionary direction. And they will. Seek and ye shall find and all that. And even if your left brain is coming down hard on yourself and you say, well, I'm a failure and I've messed this up
1: and I keep getting off track... There's no way you can mess it up. If there's only God playing to be you, then you're giving God a very interesting experience. And so that recognition that you go into this like, you know, the universe has got your back. You know, you can't mess this up. And that, ironically, actually helps us not mess it up so much, which is
0: very strange, but it seems
1: to be true. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's a verse in the Gita which says, no effort is lost and no obstacle exists. Good. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chris. I'll put up a page on bathgap.com with a link to your website and your books and your YouTube channel. Your YouTube channel has a a ton of really interesting videos. Incidentally, there's a tool. There's various ones, but the one I use is called MediaHuman YouTube to MP3, MediaHuman Human. YouTube to MP3. And you can use it to download every video on a YouTube channel and automatically convert it into audio files, which is what I did with Chris's channel because he has hundreds of videos on there. And then you can take those audio files and get them onto your iPhone or or whatever and uh, listen to them while you're driving and stuff. Because I don't know, I wouldn't sit and watch hundreds of videos in front of my computer. (laughs) Couldn't do it. All right. Thanks so much. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. And my next interview will be be in a couple of weeks with uh, Lucy Grace, whom I interviewed a few years ago, lives on an island off the coast of New Zealand. And uh, everybody liked her a lot. So we're going to revisit her and see how she's doing. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Rick.